Hello, and welcome to the 40th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. Our guest on this 40th episode is Joanne Schlank McAvee. Esquire, an elder law attorney in Deer Park who handles all facets of estate planning, Medicaid planning, and elder law issues. Please check out the show notes for a full list of Joanne McAvey's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Joanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so please tell us about yourself. How did you come to concentrate your practice in elder law? I came upon elder law in a circuitous way. I was actually practicing as a matrimonial attorney and uh, and doing real estate transactions. Uh, when in 1992, I participated in a four-part series, uh, elder uh, law series, w- with the Suffolk County Bar Association. Essentially, I wanted to know answers to questions I was being asked uh, with regard to health care issues, such as who pays for long-term care. I found myself absolutely intrigued by the real-time impact that elder law has upon the senior population and disabled population, uh, especially when it comes to Medicaid planning. I have been practicing in this area ever since. Okay, so Joanne, our listeners may not be familiar with Medicaid or know how it differs from Medicare. Would you please explain these two programs and how they differ from one another? Uh, Medicaid is a means-tested government program which pays for medical care and long-term care. Hold on one second. When you say means-tested, you mean it's financially based? It's financially based uh, on income and resources, which will determine your eligibility in a nursing home or home care. If you're under 65, under 21, or disabled, you will be uh, able to qualify Long-term care, by the way, includes assistance with the activities of daily living. So what we're talking about, and I'm confining myself to the long-term care program here, uh, we're talking about activities such as walking and, uh, and toileting, showering, dressing, um, making meals for yourself. These are some of the activities of daily living that are covered by the long-term care program. So Joanne, let me ask you, doesn't Medicare cover all of these plans such as long-term care, well, et cetera? Yes, that's, that's a misconception that a lot of my clients have when they walk into my office. They believe that Medicare does cover that. Medicare is your health insurer. And it does pay, um, you know, it does pay for those who are 65 and older or disabled uh, and under 65 if they've been on Social Security. Yes, so in order to be eligible for Medicaid, you uh, must first meet its income and resource thresholds. For example, in 2020, you may not own more than $15,750 in resources. The income thresholds are different for home care and um, nursing home care. But just know that if you are at home receiving assistance, you will still be able to pay your household expenses by virtue of the use of a pooled trust. And this is where Medicaid planning comes in. Okay, so we're using a lot of terms here. Let's first explain to our listeners what a pooled trust is. Well, a pooled trust is one of four special needs trusts that was was actually created by a 1993 uh, Omnibus Reconciliation Act. It essentially- That was a New York state law from 
from that's a federal law. A federal law. That's a federal law, uh, which of course was enacted in, into um, social services law in New York State, and it allows disabled individuals to fund the trust with either their income or their resources. When I talk about a pool trust and the population of 65 and older, we're talking about overage income. You may not own have more than $895 of income per month with uh, in 2020. So by virtue of the pool trust, you will be able to deposit your overage income and pay your bills through that trust. Okay, so to clarify, if every month I receive income from whatever source greater than $895, I will be allowed to keep that $895, but whatever is above that, the surplus above the 895 would go into what a you're explaining trust. a pool yes, trust. Yes, one clarification for both programs, long-term care for home care and nursing home care. Uh, in addition to the 895 for home care, you may keep sufficient uh, income to pay health insurance premiums. So that, that applies to both programs. Okay, so the money that's in the pool trust and which is administered by another administration. A not-for-profit entity. Not-for-profit entity. I, I have a number of, there are a number of companies who do that. So you pick your, your pool trust. What kinds of expenses may be paid for from those funds? Well, your household expenses, real estate uh, taxes, estimated income taxes, uh, your your utilities, food bills, credit card bills. In, in the case of, in home care cases, I suggest that clients place their all their expenses on one credit card. So they're sending one credit card bill a month to the pool trust to pay what could essentially be a number of their bills. Okay. And as you have said, Medicare does not pay for long-term care. No, it's your health insurance. So what does Medicare pay for then? Well, Medicare, as I said, in addition to being your health insurer, does in one limited circumstance pay for someone who is in rehab. So you know that if you are hospitalized, you are discharged as soon as you are stable, but you may not be ready to go home. So you may find yourself in subacute care or rehabilitation. It's usually in a wing of a nursing home. As a result of that, Medicare will pay for up to 100 days with the first 20 days being paid at 100%. And from day 21 to day 100, there is a copay, which by the way, in 2020 is $176 you know, per day. Okay. So it would behoove uh, your listeners to know that good Medigap insurance is required to cover that copay, and they vary. You've mentioned staying at home versus going into a nursing home. Can we talk a little bit about community-based Medicaid, assisted living facilities, et cetera? How does that play into this situation? Well, with regard to community-based programs and assisted living facilities, there are several in the counties that are actually paid by the community Medicaid program. And in one example, I can think of. I had a client who was living with her in her son's condominium, and she uh, for years. And she became ill, and she was looking also for. Uh, she was isolated. She was looking to for more, more uh, community involvement. She went on to the community-based program, Medicaid program. Uh, she was approved. Uh, she did not have excess resources, not more than the you know the uh, the year's amount of re the excess, allowable resources. the allowable resources, and her income as well was you know well within the limits. She was approved for Medicaid, community-based Medicaid, but w once she was approved, she was allowed to go into an assisted living facility 
which was paid for by the Medicaid program. And what are some tips, Joanne, that you might give our listeners who are wondering when is the right time to do Medicaid planning? It's preferable to do Medicaid planning five years ahead of time before you have a need, but in most cases, people don't know when that need may actually arise. So I think you're referring to the look-back period. Could you explain how that works, please? Well, the look-back period is the period of time uh, during which uh, you will be denied Medicaid and be required to privately pay until the end of such penalty period. So if someone gives a gift away within uh, $100,000 within five years, let's say that equates to an 8.3 or 4-month penalty period, that means they may apply for Medicaid and they may actually be a uh, eligible for Medicaid because their income and their resources are low enough on the date that they apply. But by virtue of the fact that they did a transfer within that five years, that will come net back prospectively and they will have to pay for that eight month, three, 8.3 month period at private pay rate. Okay, so the way it's it, it, the way I understand it and the way you're explaining it, Joanne, is very clear. However, this is a very complicated procedure, and certainly it behooves an applicant to speak with an elder law attorney who's an expert in this field so that you don't make a mistake, right? Because oh, if you make a mistake, what happens? Well, first of all, you don't do this without, without uh, an expert opinion and uh, oversight who will handle the application for you. Uh, unless you are under-resourced and your income is low, where there would be no reason to do any special planning, this is very complex and you may find yourself in a very dire situation having to privately pay for for months and you don't have your money anymore. <laughs> okay, so a lot of clients ask me about Medicaid planning, especially those who own assets. They have a home here on Long Island or they have bank accounts which they want to give to their children and they hear so much about Medicaid planning. They think that somehow the government is going to pay for their care even though they have resources. Is that correct? Do you find that people can keep their assets, keep their house, keep their bank accounts so that later after they pass, they can pass to their to their children and somehow qualify for Medicaid, or is that not the case? Well, uh, that it's actually a good point. I soon came to learn that uh, every good Medicaid plan requires a good estate plan, and it should be coordinated. So you may set up a great estate plan, make sure that your assets are going to be inherited by whom you want to have, have inherited, but if you become ill between the time you set up that plan and you pass away, you may actually have spent down your money. So a, a Medicaid planning actually involves legal strategies uh, to not only reduce your income so you can meet the income threshold, but protect your resources. That's where the five years comes in. By the way, that five-year penalty period and look-back period that will incur a penalty period only applies to the nursing home care program. The community-based program, you can actually do planning the month before and apply for Medicaid the following month and that's, be approved. That's a very good point. Thanks for that clarification. And in fact, you and I have talked about the use of promissory notes, which is, I think, one of the things that many uh, elder law practitioners do today, especially where the uh, person has less than five years, meaning didn't plan in, in advance, mm -hmm. now needs some assistance. So can you talk a little bit about the promissory note and what that, pro what that uh, plan is all about? Sure. When there is an emergency and someone has not planned ahead of time, uh, they may have excess resources that they will clearly have to spend down to zero 
uh, in, before they could apply for Medicaid. So what would happen is in that case, the eligible attorney taking a look at uh, their income, the per diem rate at the, at the nursing home, and what resources we need to protect would set up um, a gifting program and a promissory note pro program at the same time. So all of the funds would actually be released to the threshold amount because they're allowed to have 15750 And a portion of that gifted amount will be uh, a loan back. And the portion that is the gift will actually be the amount that will be used to calculate the penalty period. So in other words, if they gave enough money away that incurred a three or four month penalty period, you better make sure that the promissory note that is going to be used to pay for that penalty period is sufficient to do so along with their income. Okay, this is definitely something our listeners should not be doing on their, on their own. If they make a mistake, they might, in fact, invalidate the eligibility for Medicaid and, and cause problems later on. So definitely this is something that anyone who needs this kind of planning should be consulting an expert about. I want to move on to some specific examples, no names, of, of how the Medicaid rules apply I know you've been practicing many years. Do you have any actual cases which you could talk about oh to our listeners? Goodness. I have dozens and dozens I can think off the top of my head, but we're going to confine it to uh, how about a couple of uh, nursing home cases, someone I can think of who was under the age of 65. So she was a 60-year-old uh, working woman who fortunately suffered an aneurysm and strokes and she was um, rendered incapacitated. In order to get her Medicaid eligible, we needed to have her spouse transfer resources to himself. That's because transfers between spouses for Medicaid are exempt. Problem was, he had no power of attorney because she had done no planning. This was a case of no planning. The good, th the good thing, if you want to look at it that way, was that because there was a spouse, the transfers would be allowed. He needed authority. He, got, he had to be named a guardian, so that required a, a court proceeding. And with that, he was able to transfer resources to himself, as well as recoup gifts that they had given their children. They had to be returned before the first of the month that we applied. By doing that, she was Medicaid eligible and she was approved. And uh, you know, at the cost of an excess of $16,000 per month, that was a very good move. That was a good move, except let's, let's go through all the, all the hoops he had to uh, jump through. The guardianship process is an expensive process to begin with, going, going to Supreme Court. Plus, it's time-consuming. Had there been a power of attorney in place, he could have done everything right away. So that Well, that, that's a lesson to be learned. Anyone who, um, who is thinking of a, a, any kind of estate planning should have basic documents in place. Right, and even with, even if you're you're talking only about Medicaid planning, you still have to have those basic documents: healthcare proxy, power of attorney, last will and testament. A absolutely, and living will. And is there anything else, uh, any other cases you have to describe? Maybe somebody over sixty-five. Yes, yeah, someone. Uh, I had a client. I can recall a client in her eighties. Um, had she had actually done some uh, planning. She had placed her home in a trust more than five years before, but she wanted to retain an investment account that she had uh, in order to have access to funds. Uh, she, I heard from her daughters when she was hospitalized and she was going to be in need of nursing home care, so I was retained to do the Medicaid application. Upon reviewing the resources, we discovered that her partner had um, stolen 
uh, her investment account for himself, placed it in his own revocable trust, and had, re had refused to return it. So in order for her to not have to privately pay, we, she had, we had to prove to Medicaid that she was attempting to recoup the stolen property. She brought a civil lawsuit, and by virtue of that, that was proof enough for Medicaid. She was otherwise Medicaid eligible with what planning we had done, and she was promptly approved for Medicaid. That was step one in this particular case. Now, of course, she's under threshold. She doesn't have this investment money, but at some point in time, when it is recovered, now she's over-resourced, and she's on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. She would be denied continuation of Medicaid. So what we did was that we, re we actually took her off of Medicaid the first of the month following her receipt of the funds back in her hands that made her ineligible, and we promptly did exempt purchases and transfers, such as funeral expenses, which are now allowed for not only the applicant, but family members, as well as purchasing a car. And those exempt resources actually allowed her to be Medicaid eligible on that first of the month. The mm -hmm. same day she was removed, she was eligible again. And in that case, there was no lapse of coverage. Okay, so we've spent a lot of time talking about how to get on the Medicaid roll. Let's talk about what happens when Medicaid comes to try to recoup some of those funds. So we do know that through some probate matters, in particular when, it, when you go through the, the surrogate's court, Medicaid is notified of the fact that the decedent had passed, if not before, and oftentimes New York State, being a cash-strapped state, goes after the prior recipient's estates to try to get funds back. At least that's been my experience. That's mm -hmm. been a number of states I've handled. So how, how is that working today? Well, um, in New York State, Medicaid may only recover against the probate estate. So that means those are assets that have no direction, no place to go in your single name alone. They're not joint assets. They're not assets in savings accounts or life insurance policies or IRAs with beneficiaries. They are not that. They are not a home and trust. They are not that. They might be a single savings account that the um, applicant had forgot to put a beneficiary down. Or even, or even a house, which only has the, uh, the person's name on it. Well, that's it. The ha if the house is not in trust mm -hmm. or has not, doesn't have another name on the title, which you don't want to do for other reasons, tax reasons and liability reasons, so that's not a good idea. But yes, that's absolutely correct. Any uh, probate asset is an asset that is in your name alone and no direction upon your passing of where it shall go. Mm -hmm. And then Medicaid can sue to recover that money Absolutely. and put on a claim. Absolutely. So people should be aware that just because they're applying for Medicaid does not mean that down the road Medicaid will not seek reimbursement of those funds. Without planning. Without planning, correct. It's always about planning. Because I haven't had any clients who have had to, to pay back anything after, after the, you know, they have passed. Because they've planned with because you in planned. advance. Because they planned. I want to talk for a moment about a disabled adult child because sometimes planning can involve, especially if the disabled adult child lives with the, the parents and the parents are on the, on the deed or have other assets. How does that work? How is the adult disabled child able to inherit or to receive assets without either Medicaid reimbursement or, or any other difficulty? Well, 
A disabled child uh, may be on means-tested government benefits, such as supplemental security in income. That might be a developmentally disabled child or someone who is injured and may go be uh, on social security disability at some point in their, t in their lives. But in any event, the special needs trust that I alluded to before from the passage of the Omnibus Reconciliation Act of 1993 did create a, a class of four special needs trusts. And certainly a child who um, either has a, you know, a recovery or uh, has funds of their own would be able to fund a first-party special needs trust. Up until recently, however, uh, the law did not allow that disabled child to create their own trust. They may be mentally capacitated but disabled physically. Uh, that has changed as of May 2017, I'm very happy to say, and therefore now that disabled person uh, under 65, by the way, must be under 65, may create their own trust. So the funds, uh, recovery, inheritances, gifts, may be funded into this trust to enhance the life of that individual without being cut off of these means-tested government benefits. I, I men mentioned SSI, but we're talking about Medicaid as well. Medicaid acts as a health insure insurance policy for these uh, younger individuals. And that's it for our 40th episode. Thank you so much, Joanne McAvey, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Okay. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the Long Island Law Podcast that Suffolk County homeowners who receive county grants to upgrade their septic systems must declare the amount of the grant as income and pay federal taxes on the sum, even if the grant was paid directly to the contractor who installed the system and not to the homeowner. So ruled the Internal Revenue Service. The purpose of the grant had been to offset and encourage Suffolk County property owners to replace aging septic systems and cesspools in Suffolk County. But now owners will have to factor into their taxes this additional tax when deciding whether to improve their water quality systems. The LA Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.